I've just come back from travel overseas and I was flying on Singapore Airlines and they're always really strict that when you have to board the plane if you're late you don't get on the plane so we have one minute 60 seconds to boarding and after in 60 seconds we can lock the doors is that a good idea? It would if I had anyone to lock the doors. <laughs> They're all sitting on the chairs. Now please come in. Oh yeah, I've got to make that announcement. That this is the ongoing class. There is the introduction to meditation class led by um, Bin in the back there. So you still only got one person, Bin. Two people. So if anybody out of compassion wants to go to Bin's class, <laughs> that's, for the, that's for the elite, only two. Excellent. Please take a nice seat. It's a nice seat over there. Oh yeah, okay there. I don't know why no one wants to sit in that chair. A nice armchair. You don't have to be qualified, you just have to, <laughs> have to abandon all your shame. <laughs> Okie dokie. Okay, that's three o'clock now. So usually when we start this uh, meditation, uh, we usually, I usually talk about something for 15 minutes and there's a purpose for that is that when you start meditating, it's a kind of a different state of mind than when you go to the work, or when you go to a shopping mall, or when you're at home with your family. The type of mind which you have to do meditation is far more refined and peaceful. So a lot of, and more passive too. So I usually like talking about something or other. Sometimes it's relevant, sometimes it's not so relevant, but just to keep talking, just to calm everybody down so they can become more peaceful before we start the meditation. Often people think the meditation begins when you cross your legs and sit on a chair or sit on a cushion. But of course it begins before then, when you've uh, 10 or 15 minutes before, if you can calm the mind down beforehand, of course it's easier when you close your eyes and start uh, practicing mindfulness. That's one of the reasons why, for those of you who wish to really develop the meditation, don't ever think it starts when you close your eyes and formally begin what we think is meditation. 10 or 15 minutes beforehand, if you can calm yourself down, be more cool, walk slowly, uh, drive more slowly if you come in the car, that really helps. I think you all know that if you drive your car, uh, once you park it, the engine's not running anymore, but it's still hot, still warm inside. It takes a while to cool down. So that just 5, 10, 15 minutes before you meditate is also really important. And that's one of the reasons why I start talking. And try and talk in you know, a calm way at the beginning of the meditation just to get people settled in to this hall and eventually to the way of meditation. So as we are going to be meditating, there are so many different ways of meditation, especially at the very beginning. Of course, being overseas, people often ask me about you know, the differences between 
one of the two main types of meditation these days. One is called Samatha, the other one is called Vipassana. And because I usually tell this story during a retreat, hardly ever here, I thought I'd bring it up right now. So, what is the difference between Samatha and Vipassana? Is that all the meditation there is? Are they different? Are they the same? So, in order to make it quite clear, I tell the story of this couple. And this couple, uh, the man was called Sam, surname Atta. The, the wife was called Vi, surname Pasana. So Sam, Atta and Vi, Pasana lived together. They also had two dogs. One dog was called Little Meta, a very happy little dog. And the second dog was called Anapana. And for those of you who <laughs> who know, uh, Metta is loving kindness, Anapana is the breath. So that's this is like a metaphor. So one day, Sam and Vi decided they were going to have a walk after lunch up Meditation Mountain. So. Uh, they got prepared, and of course they took their two dogs along with them, Metta and Anapana. And Sam went up to the top of Meditation Mountain. His goal was the peace up on top of the mountain. Because at the top, even halfway up um, Meditation Mountain, it was so peaceful, so calm, so still. It was enjoyable. Have you ever noticed how peace is very, very attractive? It has its own beauty. But Vi, she liked the peace too. But her main purpose of going up Meditation Mountain was the great views you had up there. She had this, this new, uh, old-fashioned but very powerful Canon camera. And you could say with lots and lots of different filters, she could take amazing photographs like the whole world spread out beneath her. So Vi went up there for the, to get some nice shots of everything. The two dogs, I always think the dogs are far more sensible than human beings. They went up there just for fun, not to actually to get anything or see anything. If you have a dog yourself, you know what I mean. So anyway, they went up there, the two dogs and Vi and Sam, and even when they only got up halfway up to the top of Meditation Mountain, oh my goodness, it was so peaceful, even halfway up. But Sam had a pair of eyes. He was also enjoying the great views, and even halfway up. Vi, his wife, she was taking great pictures, amazing scenes, even if you've seen it before, still just to see like the whole of your world spread out before you is just so inspiring but she could also appreciate the stillness and peace as well. As for the two dogs, that Meta the dog was wagging its tail so much, she was so happy, even halfway up Meditation Mountains. And Anapana, the breath, that dog was just disappearing. It was getting like a ghost, like a phantom. You could see it, but only just. And when they got to the top of Meditation Mountain, to the summit, there it was so incredibly still, 
nothing moved. And the peace just got right inside of you. Sam was blissing out because of the stillness. But he still had his eyes open and could enjoy the incredible view. You can see everything forever. And Vi, his wife, she was taking these amazing photographs. But also, she enjoyed the stillness. Everything was so peaceful. Meta the dog, you know, dogs have eyes and they have feelings too. So the dog could experience a beautiful stillness on top of Meditation Mountain could look at the incredible views, but had so much happiness. And then when I see dogs who are really happy, sometimes they run around in circles, wagging their tails, it might fall off. But nevertheless, didn't make any noise at all because it was so still on top of Meditation Mountain. By this time, Anapana had vanished. Disappeared. And the meaning of that simile is that whether you're practicing samatha for stillness or you're practicing vipassana for insight, the two always go up Meditation Mountain together. You cannot separate them. And also, whether you like it or not, to be successful, you always have to take loving-kindness with you. Without that loving-kindness, it just does not work. You can't be still. You block the views of things which at first you think, you know, aren't beautiful, but then after a while you find out they are incredibly beautiful. So that's one of the reasons why they all go together. And I also included meta, uh, Anapana, the dog, the breath. Because some people still think and assume that you always have to be with the breathing. And if you can't notice your breathing, it must mean you're dead. You don't die during meditation. Meditation actually stops you dying. You'd be more aware. So anyway, so the reason I mentioned Anapana. Anapana is the breath, uh, watching the breath, that's uh, one of the tools which we use. And the simile which I've often used is, like I came here on Thursday, I arrived on Thursday morning. I came in an aircraft, because I was overseas. And that aircraft, even though I could ask the captain, would not land at Serpentine Monastery. <laughs> you can't, there's no landing ground there, not for a big jumbo, not jumbo, I forget what it was. But anyway, so the aircraft took me all the way to Perth Airport. And from Perth Airport, you got in a car, which took you all the way to Serpentine. And from Serpentine, I got out of the car and started walking in my sandals. And after walking in my sandals, then I took my sandals off to get into my room to take a well-earned sleep. And that morning, because I've been flying for such a long time, had jet lag, I told the monks I'd be up for lunch. When it came to 10.30, I was still asleep. <laughs> I had an alarm clock and it went off. It's actually working. Uh, even in my little cave, I just couldn't hear the alarm clock. So I missed my lunch. But I always keep a bit of spare in here, just in case. So anyway, these are different vehicles for different times. Aircraft, car, sandals, and I have to take all those off in order to get into my room. Just like the breath. The breath is only one of those tools, one of those vehicles. You make use of it, it gets very soft and beautiful, but then you have to let it go. 
it vanishes like Anapana in the simile. When you get up to the top of meditation mountain, you can't perceive the breath anymore. In the deep stages of meditation, you have this gorgeous bliss instead. And it's not as if you're going to die, it doesn't, it doesn't hurt you at all. The breath is still happening, but it's just getting so subtle and there's more beautiful things to observe in the path of meditation. So that becomes the simile of Sam, Vi, Metta the dog, and Anapana the dog. Sometimes I thought I should say Anapana, Anapana the cat, but then cats don't like following you when you go on walks. They see something and they could go their own way. Although we had a cat at Bodhinyana Monastery years ago, and when we did go for a walk, the cat would come with us for a walk. It loved going for walks. That was the Kit Kat. But it was also, <laughs> I don't know if you've had a cat like this, it was also just very humanized. And so once we were going on a walk, we looked on the walk in one of the huts, which no one was staying in, and it hid in the hut. And never, we never realized it was hiding in the hut. And two or three days later, you know, we were missing the cat. Wonder where it got to. And then I remember just opening the door of the, this hut and the cat <laughs> screamed and just jumped up at you, but then you know, realized it was a friend and then gave it some milk to drink. Hadn't eaten in two or three days. Poor little cat. Okay, the cat story. Here's a, what happened to that cat in the end. Because cats really don't belong in forests. They eat too many birds and other wild wildlife. So once we decided to take that cat and find it a new home in Waterman's. There was one of our disciples who had a house in Waterman's. So she very kindly offered to take it in and give it a new home. Now I know that cat was basically my cat, although Mandus might argue with me about that, but it was very close to me and I felt really guilty. You know, just you had to get a bag you know, take the cat, put it in the bag, and put it in the car. It was in a bag, couldn't see anything. In the place where your feet go, in the back. So I can't see through any window. And took all the way from Serpentine to uh, Waterman's on the coast. And that's north of Perth. And I felt very sad about that. But I did know the only time I'd ever been out of the monastery in Serpentine was go to the vet in Byford, to get what I call monasticize. It was a female cat, we didn't want to have any kittens. We could give it the eight precepts, but I don't think you could understand what it meant. But nevertheless, that's what happened to that cat who took to Waterman's. Kept in there for about three days, inside. And the first day, she decided to open the door and let it out for some exercise. She thought it was being rehabilitated by now, that, you know, didn't know where to go. But it ran down the road and escaped. This little cat. When I tell that story, people always like to just go ahead and say, oh yes, it ran back to Bodhinyana Monastery. No way, that was a smart cat. It's a long way from Waterman's all the way to Bodhinyana in Serpentine. Instead, it was like a hot afternoon, like actually hotter than today, maybe like yesterday. And I was on duty here and I was just by the door. It's a door which we haven't got anymore, it was taken down and just next to the office. Uh, 
and I heard <laughs> meowing outside the door. And so I opened the door, and it was Kit Kat. This cat, instead of going all the way from uh, Waterman's to Bodhinyana, it took the shortcut. It came here instead. <laughs> and it took two hours from Waterman's to uh, Damaloka here in Nolamara. Just two hours. And its poor paws were just hot, you know, running over the hot, I don't, I don't know where it came. But when people say, where is your monastery in Nolamara? We might give instructions. The cat can't have instructions. The cat can't have a GPS. The cat doesn't know how to ring up the RAC. The cat can't ask instructions of anybody. Imagine a cat, you know, met a dog on the way. Do you know the way to Nolamara, please? The, <laughs> the dog will bark at it and chase it away. But this cat, two hours, it came all the way here. It was amazing. And of course, <laughs> I remember when it came, I just gave it lots of milk because it was dehydrated, poor little cat. And also, I gave it, I think, a bit too much milk because there was another monk with us at the time and he urinated all over the other, mat's cushion, uh, the other monk's cushion. I think, he didn't know where to urinate here, he was used to living in the bush. But anyway, so afterwards we took it back. And eventually it passed away at Bodhinyana Monastery. It had earned its right to stay there. Little cat stories. Anyway, that's got nothing to do with meditation. But I think that's a very sweet story of how it can find its way all the way from Waterman's to Nolamara. And it had never been in Perth in its life. That I knew. So anyway, uh, so even if you don't know the way into deep meditation, be like a cat, follow your instincts, and you'll get there no problem at all, really quickly. Okay? Okay or not, here we start. So, sitting down, just close your eyes. It's just kinder to your body and mind to have one less sense to have to worry about. This is about learning how to be peaceful and learning how to be still, have this beautiful calm inside the mind. So you close your eyes and if you possibly could, it would be great if we had ear lids, like eye lids, to be able to close our ears, but we can't do that. But instead we just don't pay any attention to what's happening outside. You're perfectly safe in this room. Never had any problems in here in 40 years, 30, 35 years or something we've been in here. So you're perfectly safe. So you can allow the sound to not be important. And the, other, the next two of the senses, the smells and the taste, that's pretty easy to not be concerned about. And lastly, one of the most difficult ones for the meditation is the sense of bodily touch. It's one of the reasons why it's really important to make sure you're comfortable when you start meditating. I don't mean just ordinary comfort, 
really comfortable. So there's no stress or tightness in your body at all. And sometimes you see there are some animals who can relax so easily. And like cats are one of those animals. When they relax, it's wonderful to see. Can you relax your body? When you go to bed at night, can you sleep very easily or is there tension inside of you? This is where we learn how to relax to the max. So how does your body feel right now? What does it need to feel more comfortable? And when I got into this, you realize it's amazing how much of your body have you not learnt how to feel. Just like your toes. I use that as an example because when I was young, even a young monk, my teacher Ajahn Chah used to say, you've got stupid feet. At first that was a strange thing to say, I thought stupid was somewhere else other than in your toes. But I was always stubbing my toes on little stumps of wood or cutting them. I had all plasters over them. And when your teacher saw that, he said, what, what are those for? And I cut myself, stubbed my toe here. He said, you've got very stupid feet. So I decided to make my feet wise, to be aware of them. When you're aware, you have the chance to learn. When you learn, you have the chance to be healthy and pain-free and bruise-free in your feet. So can you feel your toes now? How are your toes? If you think you cannot feel them, wiggle them. And then you become aware of the sensations in your toes. As you become aware of those sensations, that awareness grows. Over the months, the years of meditation, you can really know your toes so well that if there's any problem down there, you can pick it up straight away. I start with the toes. Later on, you know, there's other parts of your body which are, are more vulnerable to things like cancers. I know sometimes people go to these breast screening, prostate tests, or goodness knows what else. But you can pick up those feelings before any electronic equipment can. If you're aware of your body, you practice that awareness a lot. Of course you can feel when something is not quite right. Your own senses, when they're trained, and are not stupid, can pick up things. So anyway, start with the toes and then go to the rest of the foot. How is it? It's not just being aware, if you find that something needs to be adjusted, do so. I'm not sure if you saw, hopefully not because you've got your eyes closed, that you know, I just moved my feet because my big toe was squashed against the calf of my leg that would have caused a problem if I didn't move it, so I moved it. 
and then I do that with the whole rest of my feet, make sure everything is in a good place. It's also what we call the kindness added to the mindfulness. And the word which I coined was kindfulness. Taking mindfulness to a much deeper level. Kindfulness, be aware and be kind, care. And then you can find all the muscles in my feet relax. My feet feel really comfy. Then you move that awareness up to your ankles. Some of you may have injured ankles in the past, sprained them or broken them even. If you have an injury down there, just adjust your feet. If you're sitting in a chair, just move the legs away from the chair or under the chair or apart, whichever is most comfortable for you. But seek that comfort for your feet, ankles, and the rest of your legs. If there's something inside which cannot be ameliorated by movement, then experiment with just giving kindness. Even as I go up my calves to my knees, my knees are just pretty healthy. I obviously for 50 years as a monk, I haven't practiced sport. But sometimes, you know, you have tripped or fell down and fell off ladders building Bodhinyana Monastery. You know, you did injure your knees a few times. But when you actually focus on those areas which were once hurting, when you give this beautiful kindness to them. I always feel that any of these aches and pains in a place like your knees, it's like you're squashing something, or you're stretching it. It's not in a natural, open, easy position. So I kind of imagine if my knees are hurting, expanding the area which the knees occupy in space, as if it's swelling. So everything has got more freedom to travel whichever way they want. Just comparing it to the traffic jams in a freeway. You add another couple of lanes and there will never be any more traffic jams. That's what I do to my knees. Imagining widening, just imagine widening all the blood vessels, all the other places where these liquids like the lymph and other stuff go. So there's no congestion, everything flows freely and relaxing. And it's actually what I'm doing to my own knees right now. And I'm mindful enough to notice the feelings in those knees change. Remember that the mindfulness gives you the opportunity for feedback. You try something, see what happens. If it gets better, well done, carry on. If your knees get more painful, hurting, then you're going in the wrong direction. And after the knees, I got my thighs. Scanning my attention up from the knees up to the, the top of the thighs. Relaxing all of those muscles. Making them nice and peaceful and easy. I get to my butt, my buttocks. And they're on a cushion. And I wasn't paying that much attention when I 
put my buttocks up there. So now I'm more sensitive, much more aware. So I'm just going to very slightly adjust my butt. That's better. So there's, there is a feeling there, but it's well balanced. It's amazing, even though there's a feeling there, because it's balanced, because it won't change much, it disappears. That's the nature of bodily feelings. Give them reasonably comfortable, and then they disappear. And you have no aches, no pains, nothing down there. They go up from the butt to the waist. And it's just my habit over many, many years, it works for me, I kind of stretch my back at this time. And then I let go. And that means the waist starts to feel really, really comfortable. And then I go up my back to make sure that everything is fine. I'm now kind of rolling my shoulders. I just do it once, and then my back feels comfy, ready for meditation. But I also go back down to the bottom of my torso and start scanning upwards from there, up through my digestive tract. I don't know why. I had a big breakfast this morning and I wasn't really hungry for lunch. Maybe the heat as well. But drank a lot of water. And then I kind of feel that must be like cooling myself down. So my digestive tract doesn't feel like it normally does at 3 p.m. in the afternoon. It's comfortable, but different. So I just go up there and relax as much as I can, just the will to relax works. And as I go up my body, scanning upwards, of course you pass by many of those important organs in your back, the livers and kidneys and stuff. You just check to make sure everything's okay. You go up to your stomach. And that feels great today. Pass the stomach to the lungs. And even outside of those lungs on your chest area, make sure that everything feels at ease there. It's a very, increases the opportunities not to have cancers. You know how to relax your own body. Going up past the lungs to the heart. Up past the heart, you're not pushing anything. Letting everything, just your breath coming in easily, your heart beating calmly. You're not doing anything, you're just wishing everything well. As you scan up the body and eventually get to your shoulders. Now this time, I usually ask the same thing, to relax your shoulders. Do the opposite first, scrunch them up. Because when you scrunch up your shoulders, and then you let go. You find, I find anyway, my shoulders relax more than ever before. And at the same time, I like teaching that. Because now you have more information what letting go is. People often ask me, what is letting go? 
exactly what you did. When you scrunched the shoulders first of all, and then you let it go. You allow nature to take over, rather than your will or control. And then I just go quickly down my arms, past my elbows, there's nothing really going on down there. Everything is quite content. Past my wrists, even if you have sprained your wrist or injured your wrist, it's amazing, you get to know this part of your body so well. You learn how to relax them, to allow healing to happen. You go past your wrist to your hands and your fingers. Your fingers have got no more nerve endings in them than probably most other parts of your body. So I can really sense my fingers, but I also ask them, are you comfortable there? Are you happy? Sometimes it's a weird things to say, fingers, are you happy? You ask that question, you'll get an answer. So I adjust my fingers at this stage because I'm practicing mindfulness and kindness. I go back up to my shoulders, to my neck. I make sure my head is well balanced on top of the neck. And I do this because I remember reading an article years and years ago how some people have migraines because they don't balance their head on top of their neck. So now my head feels very beautifully balanced there. The least stress on my neck. And then for the head, I go to the muscles around the eyes, around the mouth and around the nose. And I've learned how to relax them. Can you feel any tension in those muscles, tightness? When they're relaxed, I mean really relaxed, then you find that's almost like a segue into the emotional world. Because if you're angry, if you're upset, if you're fighting something, those muscles tense up. You can read a person's mind just by looking at their facial muscles. So you relax everything on those facial muscles and your mind becomes that much more calm and at ease. And having finished relaxing my face with kindfulness, then I observe the whole body, now from toes to the head. Relax as much as I possibly can. But now look at it all together, in that one unit. And I hope it works for you, but when I do this, I can start to experience it now. You feel the joy. It's a pleasurable feeling to be relaxed. You deserve to be relaxed. You deserve to have that pleasurable feeling. It's a peaceful, not exciting, 
peaceful pleasure of being in a relaxed body. It's important because that makes you even more relaxed. And later on it teaches you never to be afraid of the pleasures of meditation. My body is so relaxed right now. So now I go in to the mind. I ask myself, how peaceful am I right now? I ask that question because sometimes people get confused as to what is the mind. Ajahn Brahm, what are you talking about, the mind? So I point out what belongs in the mind. Peace is in the mind. If you can feel peace, you're watching a most important part of the mind. So I can notice how peaceful I am right now. And I ask the simple question, what is the cause of peace? What makes me more peaceful? What makes me agitated? It's pretty obvious. Any of the work and business you have to do agitates your mind. It takes you away from this natural state of peace and relaxation. And I also know that all of that work, duties, responsibilities, it always lies in the past and the future. And it teaches me that when I was just watching parts of my body, I became peaceful because all the feelings in the body, sensations in the body, can only be experienced right now, in the present moment. So far, I don't know how long you've been practicing present moment awareness. So you carry on with present moment awareness. You let go of the past. You don't need to be concerned about the future. Because now, now this moment is the only time you can do anything about your future. And the only thing to do is to relax right now. To build peace in your own future, you make that peace now. And when I appreciate the present moment, you feel joy again. It's like you're free. The past and the future are like prisons. You've escaped. You're in this moment. If you ever feel any tightness in your mind, you've let the present, you let the present go and the past and the future have taken over. Be free. And then the present moment has an opportunity to go deeper. The next stage of meditation, if you call it stages, the next part of meditation is noticing the inner silence. I'm giving a commentary, I wish I didn't have to. 
even better than the commentary, is the silence. You don't have to describe anything. Don't have to give it a name. You feel it. You're sensitive to this moment. You get accustomed to it. You're at peace with it. And this moment gets more and more silence. And the silence is gorgeous. Once you're in the silence, it's very beautiful. Things like the breath come up all by themselves. If you are aware of your breathing, please do not concern yourself where the breathing is located. Please disregard the body as soon as you can. And instead you just know you're breathing in. You just know you're breathing out. And that breath becomes natural, soft and beautiful. And don't be afraid of the delight of meditation. In peace and stillness you can have some wonderful experiences. And don't need to try and assess them be excited or be afraid. You can actually look at them from your very good memory afterwards to figure out what they were. Meditation, by the way, increases your ability to remember. And just enjoy this moment in silence and see how silent and still you can become. I will now be quiet until the end of the meditation.
Getting close to the end of the meditation now. How do you feel? Can you feel the pleasure of relaxation? The mental joy of a peaceful mind? There's nothing to do, no problems to solve, no, nothing to reach for. Inwardly content. I will now ring the gong three times. When the gong finishes sounding for the third time, please open your eyes to come out from the meditation. Usually, when things become still, stable, it's like they disappear. So the five senses vanish, and you're left with the experience of that sixth sense, the mind. That can be very, very delightful. And this is actually how we get some of the most amazing states of meditation. But please also know, as some people talking to me today, if you get some really powerful experiences, please don't feel uh, afraid. They're always wonderful and peaceful and joyful. Have you got no internet questions today? Excellent. Are they there? Excellent, well done. Yeah, thank you. So what do we usually do after the meditation uh, is complete at four? Uh, all of these talks are streamed overseas, and so it's an opportunity for people to get to know some good meditation teachings and to ask questions as well. So today we've got from Germany, from USA, and I think Gloria is still in Hong Kong. Anyway, from Germany, first of all. Dear Ajahn Brahm, could you please explain the meaning of sun mind and moon mind? What is the difference of what is better? Honestly, I've been uh, a monk for uh, over 49 years now and been practicing meditation five years even before that. Uh, 
That's the first time I've heard of sun mind and moon mind. So I'm the wrong person to ask that question of. I can only just make up. A mind is not the sun, a mind is not the moon. But sometimes in meditation, I'm just hazarding a guess, we get to the stage when the breath becomes really peaceful, it just goes in and goes out, your mindfulness is very happy with the breath. In other words, the breath is beautiful. And it's amazing just how beautiful something as simple as a breath can be. It's just your hindrances, the five hindrances are almost subdued. The mind is powerful and it sort of sees things in a much different light. Everything becomes so joyful and so happy. And that when that's watching the breath, the breath becomes so beautiful, it's so calm, you don't want anything in the whole world. And then the breath slowly vanishes. When the breath vanishes, what you're left with is the delight, the beauty. It's hard to find similes for that, but years and years ago I found a beautiful simile, and that was the Alice in Wonderland simile. When Alice was seeing this Cheshire cat, actually I think it was the head of the Cheshire cat, not the body, and the cat kept on vanishing, disappearing, just so suddenly. And I think Alice said, it's, please, you know, it's really uh, disconcerting to see you come and go so quickly. And so the Cheshire cat, being very kind, said, okay, I will vanish slowly. And so the cat just vanished. My ears vanished, the head vanished, the eyes vanished, the chin vanished, until it just left the, the lips, the smiling lips of the Cheshire cat. And then the lips vanished. And Alice said this wonderful thing, that I've often seen a cat without a smile but this is the first time I've seen a smile without a cat. There's a beautiful little saying there, and it was just showing just how there was this happiness there without anything being happy. And that refers to these nimitta stages of meditation. These beautiful lights which appear in the mind, really joyful. And sometimes that those lights can appear like a sun, can appear like a moon, what those lights are, they are the mind. It's the way you experience the mind, your mind. When I was teaching in Sheffield, it was in a Quaker center. They had lots of quotes there on the wall. One of those quotes was from one of the, uh, the Psalms in the Christian Bible. It's one which I always remember because it used to say, be still and know that thou art God. And I complained about that one because they changed the wording, be still and know that I am God. That changes the meaning totally. Be still and know that thou art God. If you're really still, that's actually what happens to you. You still, you get such joy and happiness, even, even these nimitas and just beyond. It feels you've gone into such a beautiful state, you know, a bliss state. You're not there. And that's why where that got into that Christian Bible, I do not know. But I totally agree with that. It's not you aren't, you aren't God, but you have no control. And you're blissed out of, your, of your, your head. You can't feel your body anymore. That's even nimitas are like that. But when you experience those nimitas, sometimes they can be very powerful. 
there's no like a sun. And that's why many times that people experience that state, you think, I can't carry on like this, I'm going to go blind. You're not watching a physical light, it's just how your mind interprets it. But even more beautiful than a very bright sun, it's almost like it's got too much energy, is when you experience these nimbutas like a moon, a very bright full moon in the sky. And I think you should know that in a couple of days' time it's a full moon day. You know, the sky is clear in Western Australia, so you can see that full moon. It's very bright here. And that is far more preferable than like a, a nimitta which appears like a sun. It appears like a moon. It's more tranquil, more peaceful. That's the only description which I can offer to you, answer I can offer. Sun, moon and moon mind. The mind is what you see in those deep meditations, the sixth sense, and all the other five senses have vanished, really vanished. And then this beautiful light you see in the mind in deep meditation, that is like the moon, full disk of the moon. Anyway, Joy from USA. Dear Ajahn Brahm, do you teach 32 parts of the body meditation or encourage it? 32 parts of the body. If you look in the suttas, they never teach 32 parts of the body. They teach 31 parts of the body. Later on in the commentaries, they add a 32nd part, the brain. Because in those early years of Buddhism, they didn't even think too much about a brain or its importance. They always knew about the mind. It's not the brain, and it's far more important. So the 32 parts of the body is only there to make sure that people don't take this body to be something it's not. It's only just made up of 31, 32, or you can make as many numbers as you possibly want of parts to this body. I know I do this, I have to do this at an ordination ceremony of monks or nuns. Please don't be offended, I am a monk after all. But when we do this ordination ceremony, to make sure that young monks are safe, so if they, because there's many famous people become Buddhists these days. I, I just was telling people, I don't know why it came in my mind again, you know this actress, Sarah Jessica Parker, you know, apparently, I haven't seen this, I'm a good monk, she used to star in Sex and the City years ago, so she's supposed to be a very beautiful actress. But she was photographed in New York, in a coffee shop, reading, opening the door of your heart. That's my book. So I kind of thought, well, if she really likes it and becomes a disciple, who knows, I might get invited to do a cameo on one of the episodes. <laughs> but they'd have to change the, <laughs> the name to no sex in the monastery, <laughs> instead of sex in the city. <laughs> but in order to stop, you know, people getting, oh, there's lovely stories about this. There's an, another one of our disciples over here decided to go to Dharmasala in, 
in north of India to go and see, not Dharmasala Monastery, Dharmasala, the city in north of India, to see the Dalai Lama. So I think she was the vice president of a Buddhist society in West Australia. So that gave her a bit of clout to get you know, on the list of people who wanted to see the Dalai Lama. She was granted an audience. But before she could see the Dalai Lama, you know, she had to wait for a couple of days. So one morning she got up early and started meditating. And when she was meditating early in the morning, it was nice and quiet. Then as she was meditating, someone sat next to her. And she made the big mistake of opening her eyes and see who it was. There was a man sitting next to her by the name of Richard Gere. And he said, that was the end of my meditation. <laughs> so in order to take away anyone who really wants to meditate, especially become a monk or a nun, away that lust, we always have the five parts of the body taught to monks and nuns. Those five parts of the body, which we start off with, is hair of the head, hair of the body, nails, teeth and skin. So if ever you see, like a, a Sarah Jessica Parker walk in here, what do you actually see? You see hair of the head. Maybe if you see uh, Richard Gere, hair of the body, and like a moustache or beard or something. Nails, teeth and skin, that's the only thing you see. Have you ever noticed that the hair of the head, the hair of the head which I see right now, is all dead stuff. This is dead, the roots are underneath, you can't see that. If you have like a beard, like Ron has there, what I see is dead. What's underneath is actually just the live pit. Same with the nails, that's dead. The live part of the nails, the root, is underneath. <laughs> Teeth. That's dead. The root is underneath. And skin. The skin which you see on the outside, that's dead. It keeps sort of flaking off and that creates a dust in the house. The live parts of the skin is a, a millimeter or two underneath. So if I saw Sarah Jessica Parker coming into this temple here, what I'd see would be dead hair dead teeth, dead skin, and dead nails. Who would want to kiss that? <laughs> I'm not being gross, it's just a way of just changing your perception of you know, what a person th looks like. Is that okay, am I um, grossing out some people? That's why, okay, I can't resist this story. That <laughs> this was one of the monks I was with, grew up with. He was from Los Angeles. And so we were in a car with Ajahn Chah, and Ajahn Chah just read his mind. He turned around and looked at this monk and said, you are thinking of your girlfriend back in Los Angeles. He don't even, was a novice monk just starting out. You're thinking of your girlfriend in Los Angeles. He said, yes, I am. He was embarrassed. And Ajahn Chah was very kind. He said, look, we can help you. Next time you write to her, ask her to send something of hers, 
something personal to remind you of her, so you don't feel just you know, so sad. And I was in the car at the same time, and I said, what? Is that allowable? Because that's what the monk said, is, is it allowable? Can I do this? I said, oh, yes, yes, yes. Then my tie was not that good at the time, so they had to go through a translator, and it took a long time to translate, because the translator had to stop laughing, first of all. He said, Ajahn Chah says, don't ask, say, for a piece of her clothing with a scent on it. Don't ask for a braid of her hair. Just send her a little bottle, not big, and ask for some of her feces. So when you miss, <laughs> you miss your darling girl back in LA, you can take that out. Ah, that's my, <laughs> that's my girlfriend back in LA. That's totally gross. <laughs> I can never forget it. When you love somebody, girl or boy, is that what you say? I love everything about you, my darling. Honestly, <laughs> everything. <laughs> anyway, I better stop. Oh, I've, my goodness, I've lost this one. Ah, how can you get it back again? I think they, even the, the tablet didn't like what I said. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> I've got to be careful these days because sometimes you can gross people out. <laughs> but that's just quoting Ajahn Chah. So that's why I don't really teach 32 parts of the body. Gloria. One day during meditation I saw a vague image. After that I have strong, a strong feeling that I've killed someone a few lifetimes before. How to know whether it's really past life memory or not? Is it really concerning yourself if that's a past life memory or not? Just let it go. If as many lifetimes ago, let it go. You're not going to kill anyone this lifetime. Gloria, she often asks questions. I've seen her, so she's a good lady. So you saw a vague image. If it was something more uh, precise, then maybe to get worried, but just a vague image, I'd forget about it. You don't need to know if it's a past life memory, because if you do have past life memories, why do some people get so concerned about bad memories? You must have had lots of good memories as well. If you have a good memory which is vague, and want to know if it's a past life memory, then you can develop that. I always say, in life, please water the flowers. Don't go watering the weeds. Otherwise, you get a garden full of weeds. I've got another fifth question here. Laura Blank from Germany. How compatible are Buddhism and Catholicism? I am a Catholic, but I enjoy all these talks and feel comfortable with a lot of Buddhist teachings. What I would ask you to do is go and look up the Gnostic Gospels. The Gnostic Gospels. There was originally three types of Christianity, which was just like a part of Judaism, the Jewish form of Christianity, because that's something even Jesus said that sometimes. I'm not going against you know, what the rabbis teach. I'm just like improving it a little bit. And then there was the Gnostic Christians, and then the Christians uh, in, in Rome at the time. The ones in Rome were organized as a hierarchy 
and they were the ones who actually subdued everybody else. But you can't always subdue people. So the Gnostics, they were like an underground form of Christianity. And then uh, in the village of Nag Hammadi in southern Egypt, one of these archaeologists found one of these farmers just burning these scrolls just to light a fire and was actually stunned. These were ancient papyruses. So he brought them off this farmer and asked where they came from. It was in a, in a clay jar found in a cave in Nag Hammadi. And it became the Nag Hammadi Library, Gnostic Gospels. And these were actually supposed to be sayings of Jesus Christ. Sayings, sayings like, he who knows themselves knows the truth of all things. Many of these, there's another one which I like in there, when I'm reading through them, was that God was up in his heaven saying, I am the God, I'm the best, the creator, the whatever, you know, just uh, all of those uh, sayings about who he was. And then somebody said, no, you're not. There are other parts of this universe you don't know nothing about. And God said, who said that? Oh, I don't know who said that. Who was that? And that's in Gnostic Christianity. Far closer, not the same as, but far closer to Buddhism than anything you see in the books. Books, because every part of Christianity has their own Bible. Some have more chapters than others. But it was something which kind of said there was a little bit more to Christianity in the first century than we know about now. And Elaine Pagels was the name of the translator. E-L-A-I-N-E -E, and then P-A-G-E-L-S who actually did those translations. And she actually called it suppressed Christianity, a totally different idea of what Christianity was. Much, not the same as Buddhism, but much closer. And of course, there's lots of people who suggest that uh, Jesus did go to Kashmir, uh, which was the center of the Emperor Kanishka. It was the center of Buddhism at that time in India. And there's a lot of supporting evidence for that. It doesn't really matter what you believe. What is most important is your respect for truth. And the ability to ask questions. The ability to realize what's most important in this world is respect, kindness, love. Rather than belief in one doctrine or another. It's how you live. It's much more important, I say, than what you believe. You may argue with me, but we're all allowed, oops, allowed our free speech. Do you believe in free speech? Or do you think speech should be taxed? Because some people talk too much. <laughs> okay, any questions from the floor now? Any questions? Going, going. Oh, <laughs> okay, come on, Eddie. Ajahn Brahm, um, 
It just this just came to my mind, you know. Okay. okay. It comes in. You should have another door. Open the door of your heart to uh, let things <laughs> in, but keep it open so it can I go out. You can allow me to speak. You know, oh, just yes, came sorry, to my yes. mind the thing. Yes, okay. about meditation. Yeah. Yeah. You know. You know, Ajahn Brahm, the normal human mind. Okay. There's a lot of stress. You know. Okay. That's through our thinking. Okay. Yep. Please allow me to, to, to uh, 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 thinking when we have stress, this thing, bad feeling, and we feel down, you know, okay? So that's then after a while, you know, the down, down, depression comes now. Meditation, okay? By meditation, okay? We, we, we meditate, we concentrate on the, like, a, just like, a up, you know, like on your breath, or, or you know? Yeah. So we, 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 we stop the negative thinking, you know? Okay, so or we can say, in other words, the problem we neutralize it, the thing now. So by neutralizing, we don't fall down. You see what I mean? Yes. Yeah, and then the, the other thing is, like a so when we meditate, okay, in, in this sense, okay, we we calm down, and then we can think better, and then we can use we we pasana to analyze our problem, you know. But, Am I right? And then the whole thing is to up ourselves, you know. Yeah. But a lot of time, the analysts mm -hmm. analyzing things is actually more thinking. So instead of analyzing things, do you really need to analyze the full moon at night to know how beautiful it is? You know, you know my history starting off as a theoretical physicist, astrophysicist, physics as well. You know, I had to learn how to stop or forgetting the names of the stars and the constellations in the sky at night. Because when I knew all their names, I could not see their beauty. It's the same with other things in life. People, when they go walking with me in a monastery at Serpentine, sometimes say, oh, this is this particular type of tree. And they say, what tree is that? And I just say, gum tree. Yeah. They're all gum trees. Mm -hmm. But I then what, oh, what happens is when I stop naming them, I can see them much more beautifully. Oh, sorry, Ajahn Brahm, but uh, I might be, uh, probably wrong, but analyzing, I mean our problem sometimes, you no, know, we, we over-exaggerate the thing, you know. Yeah, we So do. there's a time when we can um, think, and, oh no, it's not the end of the world, all these things, things oh, like yeah. that, you know. Can we do that way and to, 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 to lighten, you know, the yeah. problem? Is this, problem, can we do it that way? Think that way? Yeah, but too much analysis usually gets more problems. Oh. It's much easier mm. to just be still. When you're still, you don't analyze, you mm. see. You feel. You know that that book, he was a Buddhist mm -hmm. uh, who wrote about emotional intelligence rather than the usual intelligence which we find in this world where you have to pass exams, where you have to answer deep questions. Instead, it's much more beautiful, instead of having to ask deep questions, just to feel. Mm. Look, this was because I was visiting some family members over in the UK last week. They were talking about my grandma. Now, my grandma was a bit of a racist. Mm. I say that because I love her a lot. I loved her. She died a long time ago. But she was also a very staunch Christian. I remember just one day being an arrogant young university student. I thought, you know, I'm going to argue with my grandma about religion. And she was going to church. 
so around Christmas time. I said, what are you going to church for? I had all my arguments lined up, my analysis of church going. And she said, because I enjoy it. She won the arguments so quickly. Mm-hmm. She was using the emotional argument, enjoy. She wasn't analyzing Christianity, it says this, it says that. She was noticing its emotional power. And that really kind of stunned me, I never forgot that. My grandma, I only think she did about five or six years at school, you know, in those early years in UK. And I was at Cambridge, I thought, I've been defeated by my grandma. Her emotional intelligence just totally overwhelmed me. Mm. I've lost a lot of confidence in analysis. Mm. <laughs> I don't know that you know, one of the uh, famous physicists who actually came to Perth some years ago, because I had connections you know, with Dennis Shepard, we went to go for dinner at the Gravity Center with him. And I was his name there. He was the one, uh, Roger Penrose. He was the one who discovered um, black holes, got the theory behind it. Stephen Hawkins turned it around from black holes to the origin of the universe, the Big Bang Theory. Roger Penrose, you know, he's got a Nobel Prize at last, well deserved, but you know, he was somebody I would always love to meet. So at the Gravity Center in Bindoon, he was invited, I was invited up there and to have a chat with him. And he was the most, I would call sad individual. He had no social skills at all. No one could talk with him. He was like a wallflower. He's standing up there, everyone else was chatting. I was sitting next to this person who worked at NASA, had wonderful conversations, but he didn't know how to relate to anybody. Absolute genius in front of a blackboard. He can relate to a blackboard in a university, give amazing lectures, but just can't talk to anybody. And his emotional intelligence was very low. His intellectual intelligence, especially mathematical intelligence, was you know, one of the best in the world. So it's experiences like that, like analysis, you can analyze and analyze and analyze and never get anywhere. Mm. But you can feel some of those emotional mm. feelings and mm. sensations. You can see so much mm. more and it's really helpful. Can I just say one more thing? Can yeah, I go? Sure. So, yeah. You are right, Ajam Ram. You are right, you know. I'm just, you know, yeah. Because yeah. you are the experienced one. You know, so what we do is. <laughs> so, yeah. when we meditate, okay, we just like, a, in, like I mean, the trouble, you know, like the yeah. unconscious trouble, okay, we make it new, like a neutral, this thing. And then we, 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 make, we make it neutral. Yeah. And knowing, I'm just not so knowing, like let impermanence take its cause. Slowly, yeah. you know, like we, you know, we, yeah. we, we don't encourage the negative thinking, okay, exactly. and then impermanence take its course to, to solve the thing. Is that right? Yeah. I it? agree with that, yes. Oh, thank you, Ajahn Brahm. Yeah. Okay. Thank you. No, it's very nice to have you here every time. The Saturday afternoon and Friday would not be the same without any, Even I go overseas, and when I go overseas, and they say, How's Eddie? They've never seen you, your face, but they hear your voice so often. <laughs>
No, I mean, they really respect you and like you being here. You're, I went to BGF. Yeah. And they showed me the, the place where the monks sleep, where you sleep to. Yeah. BGF. <laughs> yeah. Recently, I went, I went to Penang and KL. Okay, excellent. Yeah, yeah. yeah, well done. Okay, so it's getting a bit over time now. And I'll finish now because I don't get paid any overtime for <laughs> the BSWA. And we have other things to do at five o'clock. So thank you all for coming. And I wish you all happiness and well-being. And hopefully to see you again next week. Just to say a few words for those first-timers here. When we bow, we're not sort of worshipping an image. We're paying worship to what that image represents. So I bow first of all to virtue. When I see a Buddha statue, that's what it means to me. You know, virtuous people you can trust. You know, you don't have to worry about people stealing or mistreating you or whatever. Virtue my first bow. My second bow is to peace. So we meditate and see peace in the world. Peace in our Buddhist society. And there's some peace in the world. When you see the opposite of peace, you know, the wars and the difficulties that creates for people, like even kids and animals. Why do we do that? When you find like peacemakers, I can bow to that so easily. And lastly, to kindness, compassion. Any acts of compassion which I ever see they are wonderful. They make the world bright. That's like the sun in the sky. The moon is like the peace, virtue. I don't know, maybe that's the fragrance of the flowers. So that's what I bow to. And every time I bow like that to virtue, peace and compassion, those qualities I remember, they're easy to worship and they grow. So when you see someone bowing, that's what they usually do. If ever I go meet the Pope, I'm going to tell him that so he can bow as well to the Buddha. <laughs> Am I crazy?